A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and David Priest, the coach and columnist. Okay, you lot, calm down. Denmark will be playing for a cause at Wembley on Wednesday. They have pace, intensity, and a similar spirit to the one engendered by Gareth Southgate. It's no foregone conclusion. Caution, you see, runs understandably deep. We've been let down too many times before. This, though, feels a bit different. England have an irresistible sense of momentum. More powerful because it's not being driven solely by emotion. Their strategic intent to go with a massive range of options. Now, Migs, you were in Rome... Is it time to succumb to the moment and actually make that leap of faith that they're going to win this? I'd have them as favourites, but I must say. Two games left, obviously, that can go wrong. I think if they get to the final, especially if against Italy, it's a 50-50. But, but certainly, <laughs> I mean, in England winning a tournament is a much more likely reality, a far likely reality, than any point basically since 1966. So, I mean, we, we have crossed a threshold. I mean, this team has crossed a threshold in a few ways. In terms of their outlook for the competition as a whole, they should be confident. And, of course, there's so many other dimensions to it, not least the fact that uh, they've got two games at Wembley, and a Wembley that looks like it's going to hold up to 60,000 people, <laughs> not too many away fans, unless, again, it's Italy in the final and there's a sizable element of... Uh, England's Italian contingent, but it's just one other element propelling this team. But the, I suppose the most profound element is the structure of the team, the setup around it. And I, and I was thinking about this after the game last, or on Saturday. I mean, okay, Denmark is going to be a, a tough game, maybe the toughest England has so far, possibly even more so than Germany. But if England do it, and even if they get to the final, even if they don't win it, just the very fact they're in the final again, and that's the level they're reaching. I was even thinking about kind of the stuff we're going to write. And one of them will be basically, England have basically become in so many ways from the way the team is run to the infrastructure of English football now, they've become the example that they always wanted to be. Anytime they were knocked out of tournaments in the past 20, 30 years, you know, looking to the German model, the French model, whatever, 
that's what England are now. And I, so, I suppose it's something we'll get to, you know, in a, in a deeper sense, particularly if they if they do get through. But all that is behind this team, and yeah, in 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 so many ways, they are the team to beat. Yeah, because it is a strange one, isn't it, Dave? That okay, we we look at England almost in historical terms. You know, it's coming home. You know that we, we've we've heard that song from '96 ad nauseam, with special reference to nauseam, for you know for for weeks now. <laughs> what are the valid reference points? You see, 1966 was another world. 1996, well, the majority of this team weren't even born, although obviously Southgate played in it. Do you think maybe it's 2016 and specifically Iceland? Does it take a really seismic defeat like that to provoke real change? Yeah, I mean, I suppose you you look back, it's sort of Germany 2002, where it's sort of, even though they got to the final, kind of kicked it, kick-started their revolution of how to you know, get back on top again. But I think, you know, the girls right to reference what's happening at St George's Park. It's the process that they've been put in place, especially by Dan Ashworth. Those have come into fruition now. And you see like a lot of the players, and we look at that squad now, and we see the, the characters that are in there and the relationships they have together. A lot of those players have come through a system of five, six, seven years, even longer, where the culture that they're trying to create at national level with England that's you know you, you can see it ha- what how that's bore fruit now because it's that you know you, 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 there's a big constant thing about Gareth Southgate you know about culture about creating something more than just a football team and, and on top of that the big emphasis on behaviours about how they should act sort of on and off the field more so on the field you can see that in the way that they are with each other that that's what's on top of just good football players I think that's what we're, we're We'll see now. But also, you know, you talk about reference points. Obviously, I've got a reference point, you know, over the last 30 years. So before that, you know, I don't really know a great deal. But this team is, seems to be different. The way that it's set up is different. The way that the, the manager approaches games is different. And I know people keep saying, oh, well, he was too safe in the, in the early stages and, you know, very defensive. These four teams now in the semi-final are four of the top five defences in the competition so far. So, it, you know, that flies against everything that we want. Of course, we want, we want basketball games. We want sort of excitement and entertainment, but that doesn't win tournaments. No, and I think that's what's striking, isn't it, Migs, that, you know, this is a tournament team that, that Gareth Southgate has put together. You deal with them, obviously, at a very close level. Give us an insight into what they're like maybe away from the, when the cameras stop rolling, you know, this group, it's sometimes I, I look at them and I think, wow, you know, these guys are too good to be true. But there is something different going on, isn't there? Yeah, Southgate referenced it uh, in, in, a, in his press briefing yesterday, done on airport lounges from all ends. Um, but uh, <laughs> but he, he, he was talking about how, first of all, these players, they wear the right sort of confidence, which I think is true. I mean, because I suppose it's interesting this going into exactly what we're talking about and even the debate about that song going into this last week about what arrogance in international football is and all that. But, I mean, I I, I suppose when people kind of think of that in a in a sense where they're being critical, it's a, it's a sort of belligerent style of arrogance. And I don't think you can, can you could say a single one of these players are guilty of that. Even when, like, so Jack Grealish the other day said something like, 
so it's just the truth that me, well, he, he named six of the young attackers at me and, and Foden and Saka and Rashford. We're, we're, all, we're all good players. And again, the way he says it, it's, it, I'm okay. Some, some people might read the words written down and see and think of it as a sort of arrogance, but I don't think it is. And, and the way he says it certainly isn't. And that's partly to do as well, because as Southgate referenced yesterday, they all have these certain personalities that make them relatable, that kind of, that means they're really palatable to the public. And even, I suppose, a little example, uh, on, it was, I think it was a few days before the tournament actually started, when I was up at St. George's Park, and it was the day Jack Grealish and Declan Rice were both put up for media. <laughs> obviously, send a photo, a few photos on, to some Irish friends and Irish journalists, who were obviously had a few, uh, a few, a few little quips about the, the two boys, given their history. And then, like, <laughs> and then you sit down with them, and, and I, like, and I, I remember just going to my mates in response, basically. And they're just, they're really likeable lads, though. Like, um, particularly, there's this kind of, so with, with, with Rice, I mean, everyone knows kind of the, the, the Grealish Maverick personality, but with Rice is kind of just effusive love for football. And I think you can kind of see it in his reaction at the weekend. I, I think it does reflect certain spirit of the squad. And again, Southgate spoke about that with yesterday's game, where one of the things he liked the most was... I mean, he's, he's referenced this a fair few times. And actually, it's a little bit like Mancini in this, in that he's been very conscious of the players who don't play because he wants to kind of maintain that collective spirit. But he pointed out how when Henderson scored, one of the players he had the most touching moments with was the youngest player in the squad, Jude Bellingham, who was so happy for Henderson that he'd finally got that international goal. And, and so, so that kind of link between generations. And then even you had Connor Cody, who hasn't played much in this tournament, and like, you know, Southgate referenced how when he was looking back through, when he was doing his analysis of the game, and he, he just noted at the moment where Henderson's heading it, you could see Cody kind of mimicking the header as well and kind of doing the big <laughs> celebration. So yeah, yeah there, there's just there's, there's a good spirit. I think it is, it is something different. Yeah, because what we've seen in the past is obviously cliques and club-driven, not disputes, but certainly suspicion. Dave, you've been in a lot of professional dressing rooms. An international dressing room, how different do you think that is in terms of, you know, you've got players in that team who are becoming mates who basically in the next Premier League season will be going out and kicking lumps out of one another. It's a very strange dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you look back at sort of the the last, invert commas, um, golden generation that we had. A lot, a lot of the rivalry that was stoked up, it was, it was by the managers themselves as well. So, you know, and most notably Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, he needed that to sort of, to make them the winners that they were kind of thing. But I think that, you, you look back, there's a story that's Kevin Phillips, I remember him telling me, you know, I think it's quite well known that on his first inclusion in the England squad that he was obviously very nervous and, the first time they went down for a, for a meal, he wanted to be the first one there, he didn't want to be late, so he sat there by himself. And sort of the England cap at the time, Alan Shearer comes into the dining hall and then just walks straight past him and doesn't sort of like shake his hand or welcome him. You won't find that happening now, will you? Mm. You wouldn't find happening in, in amongst these lads. And, and that's because, obviously, you don't know whether the, the rivalries at club level are, are the same, but... I think a lot, a lot with football these days is that a lot of players know each other. You know, obviously before COVID, a lot of them were socialised together. It's not a case of you know if they were going out, they're not going out where they're from. You know, a lot of Premier League players they go out in London, they meet each other, and they become friends and and across social media and things like that. So it's it's a different kind of relationship that footballers have these days rather than just what you see on the pitch. Yeah, I suppose also it must be 
in the wider context, Megs, be seen as pretty important that Southgate responds so readily to those, you know, the wider picture. You know, he was talking, you know, post that Ukraine win about uniting a divided country. Is that significant, do you think? Because, you know, we are conditioned almost to football being used as a bit of a symbol of, of the negative elements of society, you know, things like hooliganism. Oh, yeah, completely. In fact, I, I was thinking this a lot before the competition began with all the debate about taking the knee. But this team, and for all the division around that, this team has the potential to be a bit like France in 1998. I mean, that, I mean, the, the, that 1998 team, it came at a, a pretty fractious point in French history, but especially as regarding immigration. And of course, you know, it, 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 I mean, sport isn't so powerful that can ever completely transform anything, but it can have longer residual effects. It can change thinking, it can change perception. And, and that was a crucial moment in 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 recent French history, especially as regards the perception of a migrant communities. And uh, there is, there is like, uh, there was a, that kind of brief coming together and a, a real kind of communal French jubila- jubilation. And I, I think it is possible that this team can, can do something and, all, and also change the dial for, uh, or move the dial, sorry, for a, a lot of people. It's because they are, I mean, it's, it's been interesting because throughout this term, I think, again, the the debate over take over the, the booing of taking the knee really articulated this better than anything, but but it, but it's fed in right to determined right down to say when they play Germany and Harry Kane is appealing for people not to sing ten German bombers. It's like it, 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 we are talking about kind of classic two sides of England stuff, you know, one that kind of reactionary right wing England that does that you know, has led to a lot of this culture war then on the other side the new inclusive England especially given the makeup of most of this team where I think it's something like four to, at least 14 but I think up to 16 players know they could have played for another country and of course but what brings these things together is ultimately and you know it's I suppose it's unfortunate that it's dependent on football results but the flip side of that is that is the the positive power of good football results that's what that's what I can do that I can create these links or create this kind of almost a sense of communion yeah as you say Megs you know you've got to get the results but David you know what is striking about this squad is that as the tournament has gone on it seems that Gareth Southgate's options have increased he's played all the cards that he could really well hasn't he yeah definitely and it's almost <laughs> All of the time, again, sort of the sway of public persuasion, and I think that's, and, and that's been the, the the biggest thing for for us this tournament is that we've learned to trust him now, you know, and it's not always to say that you know the result always means that you've got it right or, or got it wrong. Certainly, if you you know if if you were to get beaten this tournament in in an earlier stage, it wouldn't have been because the way that that he was too negative because. Like I said, he's like you said, he's he's played all his cards right, and sometimes you know you you do get beaten by your better side, and some people say, oh, just match up with Germans, it was a bit safe as well. That's not safe. That was you know, you could quite easily. I mean, they've got you know a couple of world class players that maybe is above a level that we haven't got. Obviously, Harry Kane's up there, but you know, like Cruz and Muller, they could have been the difference for Germany. You know, in matching them up, they could they could have been the ones that were the difference. Just the way that he's given instruction to to a lot of the players, and especially Luke Shaw. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm in the Jose Mourinho camp when it comes to Luke Shaw, but I certainly have a lot of questions about him. 
And I think the way that he's been used and you can see he's been given clear direction in sort of his positioning and the way that he's supposed to play the game. The total contrast in the last game against Ukraine and then against Germany where he's a lot more conservative. And then you put him in that position against Ukraine, you, you see you get the best out of him. That's one of the biggest things for, for Gareth Southgate this tournament is that he's got it right in in individual instruction and also the way he's set up. Yeah, because in, in many ways, Migs, it's been a bit of a tournament of redemption. You know, Dave mentioned Luke Shaw then, who you know, probably is right to revel in Jose Mourinho's discomfort at his progress. You've had Maguire, you know, those sort of yeoman qualities that we expect of English centre-halves, that's come through. Harry Kane being given time to be himself. There is that sense, isn't there, that, that it's not just about young players breaking through, it's about more experienced players responding to the moment. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I think probably for all the focus on youth in the squad, as you say, I think Saturday more than any other game was a victory for the old guard. And if the game against Germany was, you know, a big psychological barrier knocked down for the team as a whole, this felt actually another one in a very different way in terms of just, it made so many criticisms and questions go away. So if you, if you look right through that old garden, and again, Southgate so referenced it after the game, you've got Pickford, who hasn't had the best last two years, let's be fair. There's even been kind of questions at Everton about, you know, I, I, I was looking at one forum yesterday on, on one of the Everton sites about, you know, where there were basically a debate about whether they should sell him. He's kept his fifth clean sheet, made, made a big save early in the game when it was just 1-0. Could have been a key moment for as easy as the game become. Maguire started the season with, with that case in Greece, ends it with injury, causing him to miss the Europa League final. Expect you know calls for Southgate not to pick him. You know as again he he's part of that defense as well and, and scores his first goal. Jordan Henderson gets his first international goal after similar questions as regard as regards injury as uh, Maguire. Sterling, of course, who literally on the eve of the tournament spoke about his unhappiness and not playing football. Not playing as much football as he won for Man City, has been one of the players of the tournament, maybe the player of the tournament. And Kane, of course, it's just what last week where we're, there are questions over whether he should be dropped after maybe an indifferent end to the season. And now we're talking about, okay, not quite a potential Paolo Rossi given <laughs> Kane has been <laughs> banging him in for the last two years, but where he suddenly, but maybe a Paolo Rossi in the sense that he grows into a tournament and can yet be top scorer. And then so suddenly we've got this kind of belief running tr running right through the squad in every facet. And I, and I suppose, I mean, Priest, you mentioned the kind of the clicks and all that earlier. But, I mean, there was a genuine potential for problems in that this summer, Manchester City are trying to offload Raheem Sterling to bring in Jack Grealish and Harry Kane. I mean, it, it could have caused difficulties that suddenly Sterling is expected to supply or link up with two players who are kind of causing him, potentially causing him issues in his club career. But, there's been none of that in fact quite the opposite particularly given what we saw on Saturday for that first goal yeah it was interesting you know when you when you mentioned Jordan Pickford David you know first England goalkeeper to, to record five clean sheets in a major tournament beat Gordon Banks who went 442 minutes without conceding in 1966 he has answered his critics but there was a moment a little vignette towards the end of that game against Ukraine where you could hear Steve Holland yelling defend properly when he you know he had one of those little mad moments the the brain fade where he came out and sliced the ball is that is it do we just have to accept that that's in his makeup 
It's a good question. But simply because for England, we don't see what we've seen for Everton for the last two years, which is the inconsistency. You know, he did finish the season, you know, he had hit, missed a few games with a rib injury and then came back in and finished the season really well. And for England, it, the shirt does have somewhat of a calming effect on me, even though, you know, I'm not, I've heard a lot of people talking about, you know, how he shouts at the defence. And sometimes that's all right if the relationship between the two is good. You know, if they accept that's the way he is and he thinks he's got to be like that to keep himself in the game because... What's happening with England in a, in a post to Everton? He's not involved a lot with England games. He's having to show maturity, whereas before that he might have went to, you know, come and take crosses that he doesn't even get involved in, trying to manufacture situations so, so he can show how good he is. But that's it's not the case for England. And I think that yeah, the couple of the couple of things in in the later stages of the game that was one through ball. It was a difficult ball that to, to volley away. You know, I think he's, he's chose the hardest way to deal with that rather than just maybe his chest up or head out away. And the other one was the the missed kick on his weaker right foot that it went straight to to Ukraine player. And at four nil, as a as a coach, you don't want to get sloppy. That's what Steve Holland. He do you know he doesn't want sloppiness to creep in. And even at four nil, you know, if you finish four two. By giving a couple of stupid goals away, it does. It takes a massive shine out of the performance and how dominating it was. But it's something they've got to be mindful of. But I really don't think that they're going to be in a situation again in this tournament. They definitely won't be where they're going to be that comfortable and allow themselves to get sort of sloppy in the last sort of 20, 30 minutes of the game. Because I mean, let's let's face it. Once that fourth goal went in, it was a procession, really. You know. Yeah, no procession on Wednesday. There are some interesting selection decisions to be made, as ever, Migs. You know, you've had two players who, you know, have had remarkable seasons in many ways. Mason Mount, Champions League winner, probably essential England player now, so early in his career. Jaden Sancho came in. It seemed that he is almost ready to reach another level after you know, his transfer business with Manchester United has been sorted out. You've gone and got Bakary Saka being available again. Which way will Southgate jump, do you think? Well, I mean, this is one of the fascinating things of this tournament. I think Priestley alluded to it there as well, that um, when we went into this tournament, the, or as we uh, for months, I suppose, but particularly in, in the weeks before, right up to the Croatia game, the huge debate, in fact, it was something that a lot of people around players said, where there was almost this kind of weight for people to kind of be able to criticise Southgate, who's, oh, he doesn't know his best 11. That's a problem. He's got to know his best 11. Whereas that has just been completely demolished as an argument because he's he's just gone for horses for courses approach and picked teams to fit. And it's worked perfectly so far. Well, certainly perfectly in defence, which has seen a lot of chopping and changing too. And they've been potent enough up front with the release we saw on Saturday. And I suppose there's a few other kind of interesting angles to that as well in terms of I, mean, I, I, I don't think any England player say has had um, a bad quote unquote bad turn for like that. But I suppose just to, just as a indication of how things shift, I suppose, and how just how much variety there is in this squad. We we went into the Euros kind of talking about Phil Foden as a potential gas coin, but I suppose the opposite has happened in that because of the strength and depth elsewhere and because of performances of other, he hasn't really had too many minutes. In fact, he, like him hitting the post against. Croatia now seems months ago. I mean, I suppose that's the nature of tournaments in general. But and that's that's no reflection on Foden. Although there's, there's maybe I mean there's maybe a slight 
not an issue, but maybe just a different context for him in that in the Manchester City system, it's so structured and coordinated in a way that is impossible international football. Maybe there's an adjustment to that, and maybe in that context, some of the other players are are, are better able to fit into Southgate's system, or at least at least in this tournament. And there's no question Foden's going to be a superb player for, for England in the future and a dominant player. But just... It, it it just shows the depth Southgate have uh, has, and even for Sancho to suddenly come in because it was again a similar debate over him and similar questions over why Southgate wasn't playing Sancho. Then he can he's able to just slot him in to absolutely no negative effect, but only positive effect for a, a major tournament quarter final. Mm. Blame Denmark. You know, as I said in the intro, David, they've got the the power of a cause. Christian Eriksen, obviously. Do we in the media think read too much in that? But although when you're in the inside in the dressing room and you see a teammate in that situation and you've got a country feeling probably the same way, does that actually have any competitive bearing at all? I mean, it's something that will probably be in the will always be in the forefront of their minds. It could be something that's mentioned in the in the dressing room beforehand, you know, do it for Christian and everything like that. But also now, I think they've probably got past that now. I think in the you know the the Belgium game and and, and perhaps the the Wales game, there's you know there's a lot of emotion you know flying around. But off the back of four goals against Russia, four goals against Wales, the win the other night, you know. It's a different kind of sort of... It's the confidence that's flown through them now. And so rather than that just being the, the real motivation, now it's sort of like... not I don't want to say it's secondary, but it's it's just a, an added thing for them to, to go on and, and, and perform well. Rather than it being sort of too overbearing, too emotional, now it's like, it's like the cherry on top of the cake. Now, now we can, you know, go and perform and then at the end of the game we can say it for, for Christian that's how we want to do it. And I mean, to be honest with you, I, I spoke to a few people back in Denmark and I've got a friend who's working over there now. And even in the group stages, we set ourselves, we don't really want to meet Denmark. It, we're really fearful of them. And I think that, um, you know, they've shown <laughs> since the group stages quite rightly they need to be feared because, again, they're... They're not, they've just got good players. They're a very good side. And Casper Ullman's got them playing really, really well. And you've got to think as well, I think they've only lost two games out of the last 30, maybe three games out of the last 31. So coming into this tournament as well, it's not like they're just surprising everyone now. And of course, the last two games against England, they've beaten us and drawn with us. So it's going to be a tight one, I think. Yeah, and you know, you can see parallels with the England squad. You know, Similarly, empathetic coach. You've got their own redemption stories. You know, Casper Dolberg, you know, three goals in this tournament. He's had his problems at Nice, you know, including COVID after leaving Ajax. What do you make of them, Migs? Very impressed. Yeah, I, I, I think Dave is right. I think they were an emotional on an emotional wave, but that has almost given rise to something else, which is just a growing belief in their play as a team. And I, I think also you can almost see it in their football as well. Whereas, I mean, I was at both of those games in the Nations League when they drew at England and beat them. And I suppose as much due to England as Denmark, they were very kind of restrained games and kind of tactical games where I suppose a little bit like England in terms of the football, well, at least England against Ukraine and maybe Germany, 
there's been that release to the Danish side as well. They're not they're not just kind of it's not just strategic, but there's you know the emotional sweep around the team has given way to this sweep of attacking in their football. I think we, we particularly saw that in the Welsh game. There's there's no fear about this team, and I suppose that's an advantage going into a semi final as well where. There's no, or it's a, you know, it's a, it's a potential psychological advantage going into a final where not, not quite at everything now is a bonus. I mean, we are talking about previous European champions. That's something that England haven't done. They haven't lifted the Euros. Denmark have. They have that as part of their legacy. But because they're, it's, I don't think it's unfair to say maybe they're the fourth, fourth favourites of the four, of the four teams left. And so there's, there's, there's no pressure in that regard. They're, they're already absolute heroes. So they can play with a certain freedom that will maybe mitigate, mitigate some of the advantages England have, like like that home crowd. I think it's... I, I genuinely think it's a, a much more awkward and difficult game than Germany. Okay, It doesn't have the psychological weight of the Germany game for the players or the country or the crowd, but it has other elements that are just... A, particularly just in general play. And because I think they're a much better set-up team than Germany, even though they don't have the same quality, that's going, that's going to make it tough for England. Maybe their, their biggest challenge so far. And I suppose this is the other interesting thing about the game as well. I mean, say, like I know we'll come on to the other semi-final a little bit, but say if you look at Spain, where their whole tournament has basically been setback after setback after setback, going right back to the start of it in terms of Busquets getting COVID, and they've recovered. Whereas England's actually been the opposite. There hasn't been a single setback yet. It's been so smooth. And I suppose that's, I mean, obviously the, the main psychological barrier we're talking about is finally getting beyond a, a semi-final for the first time since 66. But part of that may be if England can see the goal or if a game goes difficult. That, that's the, the one thing we haven't yet seen from this team. And it's not to say they're not capable of it or that it's an issue, but it would just be interesting or instructive to see how they'd react to that. But, you know, maybe, maybe they'll, we'll see what we've seen so far and they'll just, uh, there'll be no setback against Denmark either. Yeah, what was it Mike Tyson said? Everyone's a hard man until they get punched in the mouth. I suppose we might <laughs> see what's going on there. The other thing, I suppose, David, is is just, you know, we talked about England's range of options. Denmark have had seven separate goal scorers in this uh, tournament, which has got to be a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, they're not too thin on the ground when it comes to squad as well. You know, they've got good defensive cover, Joachim Anderson, uh, Zanke Jorgensen, who was at Huddersfield a couple of seasons ago. Robert Skull, who's at Hoffenheim, he hasn't really played that much. And obviously Yusuf Poulsen's been out injured, so he'll be fully should be fully fit when he's for for our game. So it's yeah, they have got a, a lot of options. And just looking at like you mentioned Casper Dolberg there and, and the likes of Martin Braithwaite, it just kind of reminds me when when I was in Denmark, you know, there was a there was a film that came out called Odeva Denmark, which is like it, it, and it was Denmark about the whole sort of nineteen ninety two, but it was it, it went right back to. I, sort of, I literally watched that last night. Yeah, <laughs> would you believe? Oh mate, it, it's it, it's brilliant, mate, isn't it? And I think that um, yeah, it, I really enjoyed it. And it goes back to sort of when um, sort of the early eighties when the, the the Danish FA wanted to, you know, they thought they needed something, uh, you know, to do something different. They were sick of. The players would turn up and see it as a bit of a holiday, but it, uh, in fact, when you know you look at it, you transfer that to now, the likes of Dolberg, who you mentioned the troubles he's had. I think one of his teammates has just been sacked because he stole a watch from him for, in the dressing room. Martin Braithwaite, you know, obviously it's a huge move to Barcelona. That's you know, a lot of people would say that he's, he's not quite up to that standard. Coming into this tournament and coming to this group of players, 
and and actually being in Denmark while they're doing this for most of the time, it is a kind of relief for them. It is a kind of sort of forget about all your troubles and you know focus on something positive. And it's it, it is sort of it is something that's like I said, it, it harks back to to the previous eras where they've had unbelievable teams. And I think that's what we've got to acknowledge as well. I mean, Denmark over the last 30 years have had some mm. tremendous players for such a small country. And we talk about, you know, you mentioned arrogance for the England players before. People probably don't realise that the Danes do have a real sort of streak of arrogance in them. They are a, 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 a kind of a mixture of Scandinavian, a little bit British and a little bit of German as well. And all their players, you look at someone like Christian Eriksen. Christian Eriksen's quiet, humble, unassuming, but he's got... He's got a real steel about how he wants to play and how and the confidence in himself. And I think a lot of the players, you know, regardless of their talent, you know, a lot of the Danish players do have that as well. Yeah. There's one final point, Migs, on the, on this semi. Very few Danish fans at Wembley on Wednesday. England have had none of the exhaustive travel endured by other teams. You know, it's ludicrous probably that Denmark had to play in Baku, isn't it, on, on Friday night? which can only be down to UEFA's you know, political expedience, probably. Is this tournament being played on a level playing field? Not quite, certainly not in terms of home advantage. But again, I think maybe that's sometimes the kind of, I suppose, fortuitiveness that comes with winning tournaments. And in, in, in a similar way, well, not in a similar way, but in the way that in 1992, just almost because they came into the tournament late, things ended up kind of falling in a strange way for Denmark. There has been a kind of um, a slight haphazardness, or sorry, a haphazardness elsewhere that's fallen in place for England. Because let's not forget, their group games were supposed to be in Brussels, except for the fact that they couldn't, the Belgians had to pull out of that project in 2017 because it wasn't going to be done in time. I can't remember the exact specifics. But yeah, the, those games were supposed to be in Brussels and they were moved in 2017. And of course, up until about a month or two ago, the last 16 game against Germany was supposed to be in Dublin except for the Irish government was unwilling or wasn't confident enough to make guarantees in terms of the numbers that would be possible at games. And it's, it's still quite restrictive in Ireland at the moment. So by contrast, this actually, a semi-final would have been England's grand homecoming this summer, had this competition gone in the way it was supposed to. But it, it, instead, it's been very different. It's been virtually a home tournament for, for the team. And even that might have fallen well for England because Southgate made a point to this before the Ukraine game where he said he was actually happy that their next game was away from Wembley because he didn't think the Wembley crowd would be able to match... This is, I suppose, an inevitable human thing, but he think they wouldn't have been able to match just the emotion that went into the Germany game. And it could have, it could have just maybe created that bit more of a kind of not pressurised atmosphere, but just a slightly different context that made it that bit more difficult. Maybe it was that bit flatter, especially after kind of the Lord Mayor show of the, of the Germany game. So in that way, in that way, maybe this one away game, the, Ro- the game in Rome, fell for England as well. And now they come back to what is going to be another massive event. There, there is an interesting thing, actually, where I, I think there's a historical stat where the stage that hosts most get to and go out at is actually the semi-final. And there's so many recent examples. Right. Something to ponder, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Sorry. The, the, other, the other semi-final, Dave, Italy, 32 games unbeaten, pretty cohesive. You would think that they're probably worthy favourites. just want to look at Roberto Mancini, if I could, please. He seems to have had 
he sort of instigated a bit of a quiet revolution there, hasn't he? There's a lot of familiar virtues in that team. But it also, a bit like England, feels a bit different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in many ways, they're, they're a very un-Italian team. But I think we've seen in the, the last 15 minutes of the Belgium game, you know, that the the strengths still lie there. You know, Keeling and, and, and Benucci, just remarkable defenders. Just two, two defenders who you would want to be in front of you if you were a goalkeeper. It just shows that a lot of it, I mean, of course, they're very good defenders. They're, you know, they're, they're very clever defenders, how they position themselves and... and Particularly in blocking shots, we've showed a lot for years at Juventus that their their positioning is just incredibly accurate. But I think that it's the mentality that they have. But on top of that, Mancini's built on top of that. You know, he's got players like Jorginho, who a lot of people would just say he's a bit of a crab. You know, he, he plays the simple passes, doesn't affect games. Maybe is it how like how fans want him to see? But you see him now. As soon as he gets the ball, he's playing balls forward. Just bits, through the lines when they need to, they can have patient build up. But a lot of time, they're very direct with the passing, and they've got so many options that I mean, Spinazzola is going to be a big loss for them on that left hand side. And I think it was really good. You know, we talk about the uh, the culture that Dallas Southgate's formed with England, but you look at there was a video that went out. I think on breakfast the next morning, and Spinazzola's there on his on his crutches, obviously. He's tore his Achilles, you know, and every player in the squad, every member of staff came up and hugged him and kissed him and. And it seemed really genuine and it's it was quite moving actually, you know, and it, it just shows the the strength of that squad as well. And Mancini's got to take a lot of credit for that. And and, and behind the scenes, you know, you look at Lombardi and Gianluca Vialli and his backroom staff as well. They, they've all played important parts in, in, in forming that team and and Mancini's got to take a lot of credit for it, you know. You know, he, he's he's not the coach that he was at Man City, you know. He's had of course he's he's still got great players at his disposal here. But he's, he's formed that team to play the way they are now. And it's, uh, yeah, credit to him. Yeah, it was a brilliant photograph I saw after that, uh, the, the win at the weekend or Friday night, where Mancini is in the middle of the huddle and he's got he's got his index finger point, pointing at them. And I was struck by the faces of the players. They were wired into him. You know, they, they weren't looking anywhere else. And you could see the joy on their faces and the intensity it was fantastic. And, you know, I spoke a little bit about familiar virtues, Migs, but let's look at some familiar faults, shall we? Yeah. Immobile rolling around like that, you know, what are we going to do? I, that, I just found that <laughs> embarrassing. And secondly, you know, that last 20 minutes, that was a masterclass, wasn't it, of how to kill a game off? Oh, yeah, that's it. I mean, one, one man's fault is another man's expert game management. <laughs> or, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> just the the, the 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 brazen, blatant nature of it—it it, it, it was remarkable. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I've been talking to people since the, about this uh, since the, since the uh, the Friday night game. We were in Rome for it as well, watching it from our, our hotel due to the UEFA bubble, so we didn't get too much of the atmosphere. But I mean, there's there's that. I mean. As much as the team, or sorry, the, the football this team plays is a symbol of a new Italian style as they kind of embrace football modernity, there is still that element as if, kind of, as we saw in the last 15 minutes, yeah, yeah, a leopard doesn't change its spots. That's what they really love to do, to really dig in, really defend. And of course, so, so much has been made of uh, the way, more than any other team in this tournament, 
or more than any other you know national team almost in general they really celebrate hard defending kind of and proper defending and the sort of, those sort of really kind of defiant challenges that make a difference and and and, and it's it's also it becomes defending that that's it's hard not to kind of to really enjoy in a way you would enjoy it, attacking football. I mean, like I suppose, like most people, ultimately it's what it's it's attacking football and open games that that get me going, and it's why you watch. And yet, when I think of defensive performances that I've genuinely enjoyed, and like you, where you really get into them from a defensive perspective, I think nearly all of them are from either. Italian club teams or the Italian national team, and the one one of the ones that comes to mind the most beyond last night was the Euro two thousand semi final against against the Netherlands. Yeah, well, you know, I I think Chiellini in particular is just a rock star at the back, isn't he? He's fantastic. Need a good goalkeeper, David Gianluigi Donnarumma, a worthy heir to Buffon. He's certainly proven it. I, th- I think um, since he came in the side at sixteen, Milan side at sixteen, I'd kind of just sort of slept on him a little bit, just waiting for him just to to, to not to grow at his potential. But I mean, at twenty-two years old, over two hundred games in Serie A, thirty games for Italy. You know, it, it's a remarkable feat, and the way that he carries himself, it, it belies his age really. And I think that. You know, he's he's not had an untroubled career so far. You know, yeah, all the um, the controversy over turning down the contract offered AC Milan and being forced to to, to resign again when uh, when the ultras had a little word with him. <laughs> but of course, but of course, now that his his contract is expired, looks like he's got a PSG, and and I think it's probably one of the biggest things that over the past few seasons at AC Milan that he's not he's not been there at the at the top end of. You know, winning titles. You know, last stages of European competitions. You know, and, and that's probably kept him in the in the dark a little bit. But there's no doubt that this is a world class goalkeeper. He's the one, yeah, wonder kid of goalkeeping at the moment, and he looks anything like a kid, to be honest with you. And then similarly to to Jordan Pickford, you know, he's been well protected. There's no doubt. I mean, you look at all the great goalkeepers in the past. You know, he mentioned Buffon there, even. In English terms, David Seymour, Arsenal, you know, you still have to be very well protected, but the key is to be there when you need it. And, he, and he's certainly that. And I mean, you look at it, I know it's a little bit simplistic, but you look at the frame of the guy and the saves that he's making, he looks unbeatable himself, you know? So it's, and, and also for somebody, you know, I hate to say this, for a big man, he's very comfortable on the ball, he moves really well, you know? And it, like, like I said, allied with his physical attributes. You know, if he does go to PSG, which looks likely, they've got themselves a world-class goalkeeper for the next 10, 12 years at least. Yeah, good good feat for a big man, eh? Um, <laughs> Spain, mm. have they been progressing without really impressing, do you think? I think there's a bit of that. I think because in terms of the evolution of the team, I don't think that's really happened in a way we've seen with, say, England. But I think what has evolved really impressively with Spain is... Psychologically, I mean, just it, it, I, was, I was thinking about this after they went through against Switzerland. It's like they faced a setback at almost every turn of this competition, and so many previous Spanish generations, and actually, particularly the teams of the last three tournaments, which is almost like this massive hangover after kind of the greatest era of success that in international football has ever known. It, it, it would have knocked them out. 
but it hasn't. In fact, and it almost feels as if just as the problems get all the more profound, they actually react in an even bigger way. So, of course, what we started off with Busquets' COVID case, which disrupted it really, and I think it's probably been overlooked just how much that disrupted their plans. Like Luis Enrique, he's obviously been very conscious of changing Spain's whole style, making them more direct. So they aren't kind of, they don't fall into these traps of endless possession. And then he was denied a week of preparation with the team. And I think that's maybe why we saw those first two games where it was very kind of the worst of Spain and just perennially passing it sideways without kind of any any sort of um, breakthrough. And kind of these games, it almost became philosophical existential crises against Sweden and Poland. Then, of course, they, they, they play Slovakia. Morata, who's been kind of almost... You know, one of the main figures in terms of a psychodrama in the tournament misses the penalty. They finally they, they break through, but then they end up finishing second in the group against Croatia. Of course, it's almost as if that this whole joke about passing reaches an absolute parody, and that they literally pass the ball into their own net. Yet they were they recover from that to go and win that game twice. And even Morata, of course, who even not just in the tournament but even in that game missed two massive chances, ends up scoring the key goal. And he's not the only hero in it. There's also Unai Simon. In fact, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear what Priestley thinks about Simon for those penalties. But even before the shootout against Switzerland, he made two huge saves. One at 2-1 in the Croatia game, then another at 3-all just to start the extra time. And then, of course, the Switzerland game, after a tournament where, or sorry, a, a year where Spain, I think, have missed six consecutive penalties. A game that seemed such classic Spain in that they battered Switzerland this time. Again, it was almost like their strikers were a parody and missed chances they should never have missed. And then it goes to penalties and you think this is it, it should be doom. And they get through. And with, with, with the keeper, I, I mean, I was, I was really impressed with Simon. And it was almost like, it was almost, it almost felt the opposite to Joe Hart in 2012, where his antic, where, whereas it was almost as if in 2012, Joe Hart surrendered that game to Pirlo and surrendered to psychology. In this case, it was the goalkeeper recapturing the psychology of the penalty shootout through the way he was moving on his line and how intimidating he made himself. Yeah, well, there's been a familiar theme through all this is, is, is redemption. With Simon, David, I think it wasn't that long ago, he was fourth choice at his club. An amazing turnaround. Yeah, it's just the life of the goalkeeper, really, when you, you know, you're in the background and you're hoping for a loss of form or an injury to get you into the top spot so you can try and prove yourself. I think it's kind of happened with him, you know, the loss of form of De Gea and, and Kepa. It's put, put him in the position where, well, I think he's, he's proved his manager right, you know. And, and I, I quite like that around, the, you know, the, when, it, when he, um, he conceded that horrendous goal, and of course it was. But I think that even going back to the behaviours that England have sort of tried to implement and make sure that they, they, they do the right actions on the, on the pitch, right behaviours, it has to come from the manager as well. And the manager is very good, you know, just saying that, you know, if these things happen and, you know, it's about how you move on, it's the next action that matters rather than the mistake. And and, and he backed him all the way. And I think he's, he's, he's saying that the two huge saves that he made and the, the penalty shootout, especially the penalty shootout. The difference between him and sort of like what Joe Hart was trying to do and seeing other keeps trying to try and shout and put them off. It's something you have to do something with your body to upset the. It's called like the 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 double OP loop of how somebody comes to make a decision and an action. Certainly in like in a penalty shootout, and 
for instance, if you you've seen this season in France, I think it was a, a PSG game uh, with the opposition keeper. He just stood to the side of his goal, just stood to one side, and all that does it just upsets the processes that the, the penalty takers finds natural, and just puts a glitch in it. And like you see, that Neymar just did, didn't even hit the target. And it was the same the other night. I think the fact that he was moving along his line, it kind of, it just puts it like I said, just puts a glitch in the mind of the take, and they. And it so often happens, you know, it so often happens that the taker either changes their mind or, or puts a little thought in their mind that upsets it and makes it so difficult and it's clever from him. And I've seen, we've seen a lot more this uh, this past tournament as well. Yeah, well, there's a thought. It certainly prompted the thought of yet another penalty shootout on Wednesday night. <laughs> don't think anyone will look forward to that. Just finally, gents, yeah, briefly, please, name your finalists. Migs, can you go first, please? <laughs> I want to say Spain as a half Spaniard, but I think Italy just are too good at controlling games where Spain are favourite games are control. So I think it's going to be Italy, England. Dave? Yeah, I can't argue with that. Well, we've all got fingers crossed that's going to be the final anyway. Yeah, me too. This is a team that reaches the parts that other England teams haven't reached. The leadership's outstanding, the principles are sound, the personalities are appealing. There's only one thing to do now. Sit back and keep enjoying the ride. While we do so, I better thank David and Miguel for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Enjoy the game. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.